podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. Um, just before I introduce this episode, I just wanted to take some of your time to draw your attention to the architectural summer school that we run with Drawing Matter, Hauser & Worth and several other partners each summer. This summer school is aimed at pre-A-level students, so that's uh, students who have yet to go to university, who are thinking about studying architecture. We're not looking for people who are certain about the subject choice, we're looking for people with a strong interest in the subject who want to find out more. The summer school has been running for three years now and comes from a conversation several years ago between myself and Niall Hobhouse of Drawing Matter and Robert Bargery of the Royal Fine Art Commission Trust. And we were talking over lunch about the the quite high stresses that uh, sit on a student's shoulders now when making their university choices with rising uh, tuition fees, but also incidental costs there really is very little scope for a student to take a risk on a course. And no matter how good an open day is, and no matter how good a prospectus is, it's very difficult for, uh, I think, a student to really get an understanding of what it's like to study architecture. I mean, I certainly remember very clearly uh, those first six months in architecture and really that feeling of trying to find the floor, trying to find the ground under your feet and understand the value system and understand how you could navigate it. All of that is really rather disconcerting. And in the context where... If it's not going well, students may misunderstand that they're going through a necessary process of adjustment and they may withdraw their interest. Or the opposite, where the commitment to a course of study and the engagement with it for several years, incurring debts, would propel them to have to finish it, whether they love it or not. And I guess this summer school is a very modest attempt to adjust some of that. Um, The first thing to say about it is it's fully funded. There is no tuition fee. And I'll come to who funds it in a second. And it's a residential course. It's a one-week-long course uh, in Somerset where the students are set exercises by leading architectural tutors and engage with the archives and drawings of the Drawing Matter Trust in Shatwell Farm, but also of the town of Bruton and nearby towns and uh, of the exhibitions of Hauser and Wirth Somerset. So they're engaging with the subject on quite a high level And we don't feel that you need to dial down the discourse. These are intelligent uh, people, but we want them to be exposed to the conversation of architecture as it would happen inside a university. So critically, I suppose, they're getting to see what that's like. But I think the most important part of it is that they're hanging out with other students their age and they're having conversations over lunch, dinner, etc. about what they feel about how the course is going, how it's going. They're getting a chance to figure things out on a deeper level than they would get from, from, from the conventional career research. And they can carry those conversations back to their schools, which I think is also essential. So it started with, I think, 14 students in the first year. It was very successful. Last year, we doubled it to 28. And this year, we are aiming for 45 students. The application process is extraordinarily straightforward. We just look for four examples of the student's work, printed or drawn or whatever, or photographed, and a short text to be sent to me here at the Kingston School of Art by by May. All of this information is in the web link, which is appended to the text on this podcast. And just to say the reason it's fully funded is that we are targeting and we actively seek to encourage applications from people who maybe are from less financially advantaged or less socially advantaged backgrounds. It is easier maybe to get an idea of how architecture might work as a profession if somebody's from an upper middle class background. And of course, we welcome applications from from people from all backgrounds. But I do think it's essential that if you're thinking of people in your social circle, do think of people who might be quieter, who might be less uh, confident in projecting what their career interests might be, because sometimes we find that they are the people with the most to say uh, when they come to the course. The funding comes from many sources. It comes um, in kind from institutions like the Kingston School of Art and our partner university in this, Queen's University Belfast, Drawing Matter Trust, put financial backing into it and open up their archives and the resources and intellect of their staff and of Neil Hophouse himself as part of how this course is designed. Uh, Hauser and Wirth Somerset give us their uh, education spaces and Debbie Hilliard there, the Director of Education, also helps refine how the courses work. We celebrate the course at the end with an exhibition in Hauser and Wirth Somerset each year, which each year gets more uh, ambitious and this year will be no different. 
Um, the students then are housed, fed, and they sleep in the dormitories of the Bruton School for Girls. So all in the town of Bruton, everything within walking distance of, of each other. And the courses then take place in Bruton and in nearby towns. Just backing also from several architecture practices whose generosity and commitment uh, make this whole thing possible. Eric Parry Architects, uh, our major funders, AS, our Ballas Wilson, Niall McLaughlin and others. And all of that information is again on our website. So listen, I'm not going to take any more of your time. I would ask you to think about somebody who might be interested in in the course, even if it's just by connecting with your own previous secondary school, your art teacher or your English teacher or whoever it was that you thought uh, had an eye uh, on the pulse of the student body as to who might be exploring their career options like this. So I'll wind up there uh, rather than taking any more of your time. And then we can go on to uh, introducing this episode's guest. Our guest this week is the Belgian architect Caroline Vogt. I first got to know about Caroline's work through her remarkable book about Dom Hans van der Laan's Rosenberg Abbey. This book, House for the Mind, I think is now back in print. And all I can say is, I would strongly encourage you to purchase it. It's a remarkable study which comes from Caroline's PhD where she actually stayed uh, in the Abbey. She both measured its architecture but also engaged in the liturgies and the habits of the sisters who still use the Abbey. And so the book is a reflective text which fuses both Don Hans van der Laan's theoretical texts and his proportional system with the study of the building itself and of the lived life of the building. And then, of course, when um, we were talking about the book and you start looking up Caroline herself, you find there's a lot more to her even than this remarkable achievement. I mean, the practice she runs Voet and der Brabandera with Lean de Brabandera is quietly producing really thoughtful architecture. And they seem to have an ability to not be limited by the scale of the brief. So... This architectural conversation encompasses scenography, it encompasses interiors and furniture and, of course, architecture. They've won a number of notable competition wins and they're now beginning to flex their muscles with public buildings and uh, more larger scale uh, domestic and residential projects. I think what's remarkable about Caroline is her open-minded attitude to the world of architecture. She doesn't have... uh, I suppose, blinkers on in terms of the fields that she might draw her influence from. In this conversation, we will go through it all, but her education and her career and her professional development includes a serious engagement with computational architecture, I suppose parametric architecture might be one way of describing it, and the thinking of Patrick Schumacher and Zaha Hadid at earlier stages in their development. And I think this open-mindedness is really welcome. I mean, Of course, as architects, we continually debate the value of the work of our peers and our colleagues. And of course, we are attracted to the sincerity of the discourse where we find it. But there is always value in all techniques and methodologies being explored. We may not enjoy the work at the end, but I do think it's important before we discount things that we thoroughly understand where they are coming from. Like Caroline herself says that her study of Dom Hans van der Laan probably wouldn't have been possible without this engagement with computational architecture. And I find that um, fascinating. Anyway, listen, I've talked too much, as usual. And so without further ado, let's get the interview going. And I do hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Caroline, welcome to the Kingston School of Art. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, I would say. Yeah, well, I mean, why wouldn't we? I mean, I came to know about you through this book, this wonderful book about Dom Hans van der Laan, House of the Mind. But of course... There's a life before that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering, do you, would you mind filling us a little bit about how, where you were educated, how you came to study architecture, all of that? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Antwerp-based in Belgium. Yeah. I studied architecture there for five years and graduated. Um, this was more like almost like a functional upbringing there. So I really got all the basics right, how to start building. Uh, but we were really looking at still Corp and Nice and <laughs> these kind of heroes. Yeah. So um, as a student, you're always a bit rebellious. So I already then kind of turned to um, deconstructivism. Oh, naughty! <laughs> <And> that was, <laughs> yeah, the tutors didn't know what to do with me, but uh, you know they let me. They let me have it. So I kind of lingered on there. Um, but I felt I, I needed to go away to to test these things and see these things. 
So I um, moved to London for a while, studying at the Architectural Association. And I did this master after master there, uh, which was called Graduate Design, Design mm. Research Laboratory, um, guided by Patrick Tumacher and Brett Steele. And um, this was really like a brainwashing into digital architecture and everything that came with it. Yeah. Um, it was a brave new world then. It was a very brave new world. You know, we were about uh, 30 students all day long, all night long, sitting there on this floor, which is typically in London. That's what I remember, this uh, strange office building. You have floors, carpets, mm. some single glazed windows, and then all these tables in the middle with what we called very fast computers. Yes. <laughs> so I guess this was, uh, this was 97, mm. 98. So more than 20 years ago. Uh, but we were really going into 3D Studio Max, MicroStation, ForMZ, all these things. Mm. And then we tried to understand and grasp uh, the, the complexity of the city, of the changing world, literally in two forms, by, by folding it, by, by making kind of blobs, which I didn't really like that much, the blobs. But um, yeah, I learned a lot there. I learned a lot. And... Um, Because of my project, uh, Fiberspace, it got awarded, um, Zaha noticed, and uh, they asked me to come and work there. So I did. Yeah. So before so, Van der Laan, I had this other life here in London. <laughs> yeah, so I am now intrigued by a sentence that includes Zaha, Deed, and Dom Hans van der Laan, right? I would mm. never have put them together in my mind. And um, what was it like then working for Zaha at that time? So her practice was beginning to roll then, right? There'd been a period where they didn't get to build very much. There'd been a lot of thinking and beautiful representations of schemes which couldn't or wouldn't be built. Mm. And then suddenly things were being commissioned and were happening. And that's when you arrived, right? Yes, yes. So what was that like? Um, well, I, I was actually mesmerized by her paintings. Mm. Um, these were these other worlds, these immersive worlds that I was really looking for. Um, and we were this group of like 25 young people trying to get these things built um, or make them realizable. Um, so there were model makers, there were 3D specialists, we were drawing by hand. And, but still we were then in, in Brick Lane Studio, one floor, and in the middle we were painting. So it was really hands-on, the models, and then the 3D. So it was a wonderful period to work in. Um, she, of course, built Fitra Fire Station, mm. and then there was the LF1 building, which is not so known, but a very beautiful landscape project, quite small. Yes, I know it, yeah. It's beautiful, yeah. actually. I really loved it. And um, so, but... Yeah, she already did a few bigger commissions like the Cardiff, which didn't happen. Yeah. But then right before I came, they won the Rome competition, the Maxi. So I've been working on that, uh, doing the 3D drawings, um, getting the shapes of the interior. Um, I worked on the Wolfsburg and many schemes of, of other competitions that she didn't win. Mm. Um, but for me, this the urbanity of these projects was not really my thing, also a little bit problematic the way that they engaged with that. And already then I was really drawn to the small scale, yeah. also Zaha loved a lot. So at some point I was doing already the scenography of a dance piece, um, also even designing costumes with, with fashion designers, things like that. While working with Zaha or this yes. was, yeah, okay, yeah. so this was happening in her studio as well. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. She started her furniture range, uh, the Zscape furniture, that was my, my thing. Ah. So really the small scale things, I, uh, I love to work on that. Um, very hands-on, um, very immersive. Uh, and very close to her. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, it's interesting because th what you're talking about is a studio then that was very much still informed by the hand. And yes. then the, the computer was a device to maybe refine and to realize some of those things. But yes. there's this kind of moment which I guess we all look at those characters a little bit differently now because of some of the discourses that have flown from the apparent certainties of computers mm. and design, right? And um, I, I guess there, isn't this, there doesn't seem to be the same open-mindedness in those quarters about where creative endeavour might be cited and 
the role of the human hand and the computer in relationship to that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Um, wh- wh- how do you feel about that? I mean, what do you think? Uh, what I loved about computer design is that um, you kind of could let go of control and engage kind of complex patterns, start to extrude them. Uh, my lecture tonight will show a few of those things. So you're looking for intensities of space, um, but then it becomes problematic when, as a designer, you don't look critical at it yeah. anymore, or at some point you really need to regain control. And if you lose that step, you know you're just ending with um, you're ending up with very boring landscape architecture or blobs or you know um, straight structures or grids with these folded claddings on them. Uh, this kind of um, yeah, fake scenery architecture. Yeah. Um, so there's it, there's this danger of of losing control, and then just having um, a form for its form. Yeah. yeah, and I feel that part of that is that the resistance from the people that are the flag carriers for the solely computer formed architecture, I see a sort of insecurity in exposing their own critical eye there, which is that instead of pointing at themselves, they're pointing at the machine. And they're sort of then saying that there really is no way to critique this other than it's what came out at the end. That discourse existed long before computers and was problematic before computers. You know, Eisenman was doing it 20 years before that. Absolutely. And it it, it had equally problematic. There's, There's really valuable thinking there also. There's really important tools, techniques ways of looking which simply have to be engaged with as there was actually also with deconstructivism right mm-hmm. you know these these isms that sometimes become colored by some of their more uh i guess uh dogmatic figureheads mm-hmm. you, you risk throwing the baby out of the bathwater when you just reject them altogether, which can happen as well you know which i also have a problem with it's kind of an interesting time to have connected with Patrick and with Zaha, mm-hmm. where it was still being formed. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, and leaving the office, I went back to Belgium, and then I went back to London because I missed it so much. Ah. Uh, and then I went back, so I went back and forth a couple of times because it was an exciting, exciting period then. Um, but going back to Belgium, I started working for Christian Keekens who was really into very detailed design, um, slow sketching, um, working with proportion almost in a classical manner. Um, so also, as with Taha, and this is for me an important link, spatial systematics, yeah. working on methodology, starting from patterns, these kind of things. Um, but I, I look very critical at this period that I had in London um, because I felt that I really missed the the tectonics, the tectonics yeah. of architecture, uh, the scalelessness, and uh, almost yeah, the inhumanity of it. Somehow, mm. it felt a bit lost for me. Yeah. So, at some point, I even was angry at myself. Like, why did I go to London? I should have gone to the ATH or to the Bedlag, which <laughs> I also could have got in, you know, and uh, really look at tectonics and and. Um, but um, last year, Marita Burkhardt from Frankfurt University uh, in Germany, she invited me over. Uh, she's been studying um, Derrida a lot, and, and uh, she, knows, um, she knows this world very well from the start, from the beginning. Uh, Marita was working with Chumi oh, yeah. a lot. Yeah. So she's been at the beginning of, of these things. Yeah. And... I presented a paper there, which was really looking back into my own way of designing and my own design process. And I really opened up this box again, you know, mm. the graduate design Zahadid box, looking at it now, 15 years later, to see what I took actually with it. And it was, well, it was very interesting to see, because the only way that I um, could have designed with Christian, and especially the only way that I looked at Thomas van der Laan and discovered certain things in his architecture... Was because of my, my yeah, my past there. Yeah, really. So yeah. It, it gave you tools that you then were able to bring into completely different contexts. And, Absolutely. And actually, they were probably more valuable because you know sometimes a creative process. No, not sometimes. All the time, I think it's driven by a resi- an internal resistance. There needs to be 
some kind of friction and abrasion between ideal and real and other things mm. cohering into the thing where we as architects act critically as negotiators to kind of drive the project forward. That, I think it's a very important thing to say because this is a podcast for students of architecture, which is that, you know, you can, you can dress up when you're a student. You know, you can try something out for a test drive and see how it goes. I think the, the, the issue really is this kind of moment of reflection that you're talking about. So you've, we've got to Keekins, and it's interesting because I didn't know of Keekins' work until a number of different Belgian architects mentioned, and these are mm-hmm. people like yourself with significant practices today, that uh, mentioned that they'd worked for, for that practice. So was, was that a, a practice that was also empowering people? Because it's, in, it's intriguing the number of people who've worked there briefly and have their own practices now. Or was yeah. that just because it was a big practice in Belgium? I don't know. I don't know anything about it. Christian Keegan's yeah. practice was quite small, actually. Quite small. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's been teaching so many, so many of us. And I think he's one of those persons who's been a mentor for many, many, many people. Um, and it's in the way that he's teaching and the way that he's so generous, generous with his knowledge. Um, he's like, yeah, an architectural brain, yeah. but always talking through his hand. Um, at some point I started working there and his office was still in Aalst, which is this really small, well, small a town up in between Ghent and Brussels. Okay, So yeah. it took me two hours every morning to get there and two hours to get back. But it was in this house of Pieter de Bruyne, which is an amazing designer, amazing architect. So we were sitting there amongst these designerly elements, these beautiful tables, also Christian's own furniture. And this had also a beautiful library. And Christian is not the teacher that tells you exactly what to do or where to look at. But somehow um, it's like he senses you and then when you pass the library and there's this book lying there and then you wonder, did he put it there for me or why is this book there? And actually at, at some point there was this book by Thomas van der Laan lying there. I don't know if he put it there for me, but this is when I really took it and really started reading it. For two or three times, I didn't understand a thing of what van der Laan was actually saying. Yeah. But I was so intrigued that I went to Vals. So he, he could really get you into these things and really invited you to really go deeper, to really see. Um, I was also very much intrigued with the analysis that he made. Yeah, a while before I started working there, he, for example, analyzed so many Baroque uh, churches by Boromini. Mm. Yeah. And he found this systematics in them which connects connects the plan with the section. Beautiful drawings that he made on that. And yeah, that really, really baffled me completely. Yeah. Um, and what he did was that he made his own interpretation of that and he designed almost, yeah, elementary forms, but they had all these almost baroque complexities of Boromini in them. Mm. Because he knew the systematics, he knew these A, B, C, A, B, B rhythms within them. And he was designing always like that. And yeah, you could see that and we could learn from that. It was amazing. So this is when so this is you coming to Dom Hans van der Laan yeah. for the first time and you're seeing this rigor, this analysis, this yeah. historical immersion. And what was that like for you the first time you went there? I mean, how did that feel to you? Well, the strange thing is, I somehow missed Rosenberg Abbey completely when I was studying in Antwerp. And it's only 20 minutes drive away. I don't know why. I completely missed it as a student. Was he not a figure in the discourse then? Some tutors were, but somehow Thomas van der Laan was this best-kept secret. Yeah, okay. Architects gotcha. would fly in from all over the world to go and see this abbey like Caesar has been there. Of course, yeah. Uh, and now I'm, I'm doing, I could do, yeah, guided tours every week, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I'm, uh, I'm handing over to some other yes, people yes, now. I've got work to do. I've got yeah. some work to do as well. Um, but yeah, I didn't really know it. And I even already started my PhD uh, when I decided, okay, now I'm going to Rosenberg Abbey. I'm going to lock myself into one of those cellars and really start writing. Because, you know, starting a PhD while having your own practice, um, starting a young family, um, teaching as well. Of course, this PhD is going nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) So it was this kind of a punishment for myself to lock myself really into this abbey. 
But yeah, then I arrived there and uh, it's almost like I never left. Yeah. Um, there's a building which is completely absorbing you. And yeah, you become one with this building because of its silence and because of its invitation to really ground yourself. I could work there amazingly well, very focused and concentrated. Um, so yeah, there was the building, but there were also the sisters. There yeah. were seven sisters till then. And um, yeah, they became like my mothers. They really took care of me. I got my own cell out there. And for seven years, I worked a lot of days in the Abbey. I really worked it there. Well, so you've yeah. actually lived the life in a way as you were studying it. Yes. Yeah. And now independently of having your own practice, yes. teaching, etc. Yeah. Um, so you got into the rhythm of the building and how the day interacts with that building, both in the habit of the sisters, but also light and climate and all of this. Yes. Because it struck me, and I've done, I've done none of the, the, the deep reading that you have, but what really impressed me most of all on the first reading in, in Vals was how the spaces seem to tune their relationship both to each other and to the exterior, which would be very, very simple proportional adjustments, but also colour adjustments, subtle, tiny, tuned uh, variations. And it felt to me like something where it, it required huge amounts of time to get the full range of what that building was doing. Well, I think these spaces, they're all about rhythm. Yeah. And they really breathe daily life. Um, of course, every cloister is, is every convent is built around a cloister, around a garden, yeah. Um, and there's no multifunctionality, so every space is there for a particular purpose. You eat in the refectory, and you pray in the church, and you read in the library. So whatever you do, also is quite organized in there, because the sisters, especially, they have their daily rhythm. They have five prayer times, and this is when they sleep, and this is when they eat, and this is when they work, and this is when they pray. Um, so as a guest, of course, you're not doing that completely together with them. You're a bit separate, but you're invited to follow their rhythm. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, whenever you change from one activity to another, that means that you're changing space. Mm. And you're, he designed these in-between spaces, which are quite dark. Yeah. When you leave a space, you go through that, and then you pass always this cloister, inviting you to contemplate. And before you go into the next space for your next activity, again you have one of these darker spaces really preparing you. And this is when you enter the space, and this is when you start. So whatever you do, it's really orchestrated and founded, really grounded through this architecture. Yeah. And Rosenberg Abbey is doing that more than any other abbey that I know. Yeah. He really designed it like that. Because it's an extraordinary mix then of this quite radically abstracted proportional system and rigorously applied combined with a humanistic tempering mm. which 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 is again you know so the value of this incredibly abstracted at times thought process and then a very uh, grounded understanding of the spatial experience and its ultimate reality right mm -hmm. which again is something that's kind of intriguing to pick out in architecture because we all understand the value of abstraction, of working abstractly away from the pragmatics of a building or its reality as a space. And then we also understand the pressures on the actual realities of the thing at the end. And it's interesting, I think, in, in, the, in, in the work that you're doing, I think, because I got that book, John Hans van der Land's own book myself, and I you know, have read it, of course, but I haven't got anything particularly out of it, useful to me, really. Whereas your book actually takes that on and makes a translation of that in a way for all of us to engage with, exactly. which is its real value. And yeah. to our listeners, I'm told that it's sold out, but it's going to be shortly republished. So yes. uh, I'll put a link in the, in the podcast descriptor. So you've done this PhD exploring abstraction, mathematical order and humanity and life, right? This Yeah, yeah. And then you graduate with your PhD, so doctor, <laughs> and then you decide to go back into practice, right? So you're kind of get your own practice going. And what was yeah. that like? How did that happen? How did that get growing? It's just an impressive body of work you're building up here. 
punishing work actually because a PhD is difficult a practice is difficult so, so how did that happen did, did that happen while you were doing the PhD or did that happen afterward um, I still continued my practice during um, during the PhD um, doing a PhD is really nice but finishing a PhD is like hell <laughs> yes so that was a very very intense year um, but there was no way I was not going to finish that thing. So I, I put the practice on a very low, low, uh, small part of my life for a while. And were you turning down work then? You were yes. turning clients away? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. We had this practice. Um, I had a partner then and, and also we, we stopped. Um, I had a colleague then we stopped working together. We were actually doing some, we started to do these bigger commissions. There, were, there was a school and there was some social housing. But yeah, we were seven at that point and I was really starting to, yeah, I, I was becoming this manager of the office. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really like it at all. Um, so this kind of coincided with the fact that I really finished the PhD. So it gave me some own time to really contemplate on that. After finishing this PhD, first I was wondering, oh my God, <laughs> why have I been doing this? And I lost my practice and where do I go now? But somehow, yeah, always at moments like this, you go through this period and then you open up for new opportunities. So uh, jobs were um, gradually coming anyway again. This was mainly design work, uh, smaller things, furniture, public buildings, the interiors of them. Yeah. Um, a museum interior, temporary exhibitions to do with design, these this kind of things. I really loved it and I met uh, Leen de Brabandere, yeah. who's actually also an architect. But we both didn't really feel like being this architectural office at all. We really wanted to work from the human small scale. And she had been working as a scenographer before. So we started to do some bigger commissions so we did the interior of Museum Planta and Muretus, yeah. which got a great award. Yeah. It was really beautiful doing that beautiful project to work in the house of these printers, yeah. um, which has parts that yeah, have been there 15th, 16th century. And then yeah, you get to do furniture and the story of this printer uh, in a space like that. Um, so these kind of things we really love to do. Mm. Our office really moved there for quite some time. We were in these spaces working with oh. these books, with the people there, was beautiful. So these kind of things I really love to do now. That's interesting. So this thing where you're in the practice before, which was also your practice, right? Mm. And you're becoming the manager, right? Which happens, right? It happens a it lot happens. in offices where uh, somebody, for whatever reason, just ends up with more and more of the administrative load. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's an important part of an office, don't you have that? <laughs> yeah, no, we do have that. We do have that. And it's one it's ones that we're constantly trying to balance, which is that inevitably one person ends up doing more of it because there's a continuity of thinking required between, say, insurances, fee agreements, invoicing and salaries, right? So yeah. there's there's just a package that you can't really share. No. <laughs> so... It's a tension. I don't think it's a, it's, it's not a negative tension. It's just one that I think every small practice deals with and we don't talk about enough, which is that kind of necessary stepping in and out of the role of the manager. Because if you become too sidelined into that role, your critical role within your own office begins to become less important, right? Yeah. Um, and then this new practice allows you to kind of connect with your actual architectural thinking. Absolutely. And how do you lean manage then? Do you do that completely shared or do you have an office manager? I'm just being purely curious because I have a small practice myself. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? How do you divvy that up? Well, it's just the two of us. Yeah. And we have two assistants and that's it. Yeah. And that's ideal. And uh, like two years ago, we started winning a lot of competitions. So suddenly we were growing a little bit again. We really had to, to finish up the work and we were seven again and I was like oh no 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 please don't because then you get into HR um, and you get into dealing with yeah, staff again, yeah again it was uh, it was it was a bit too much but well it resolved itself because we lost <laughs> Isn't it funny a lot of competitions <laughs> last year so now we're we're down to three again um, well done <laughs> but it's fine and, and the funny thing is right at the moment that you know we said like okay Let's really go for this scenography and these museum interiors, these public buildings, this furniture. 
architecture comes along again, you know, pulling my sleeve. And it actually started with my own project. Uh, five years ago, um, I, we found, my husband and I, we found this barn in the Auvergne, France. Oh, so that's your own property, that barn? It is, it is. Ah. And uh, it's not that we planned to do that, but we were on holiday there. And um, actually the barn, it found us. It had English owners and they found out I was an architect and they just really wanted us to have this barn and do something with it. So yeah, there we were, totally in love with the barn in France. <laughs> so we went for it. And it took five years to really figure out what to do with it. Mm. And we stayed there with some tents and some friends every summer, uh, working with our own hands. So I learned to rejoin the stones, for example. Um, my husband he did the carpentry course. So um, yeah, he made a stair himself and I learned some plumbing, you know, these basics. I really, really loved it. And uh, well, it's on its way now, we really decided after a few building permits, we had definitive one that, I, you know, we get our minds on, set on what we were going to do. Um, and it's, it's almost there now. Yeah. So we, and this is this, uh, this is this timber barn. Yes. And it has this amazing kind of wrought joint work. And inside that barn, it looks to me, you're inserting a new space, which yeah. is distinct from the barn, right? It yeah. sits inside the barn. Yeah. So it's a nested series of orders. Yeah. This domestic interior and this agricultural... Exactly. Yeah. So this project a lot was a lot about, you know, you've got this huge barn. It's like a monument, you know. It's like a cathedral of 1880, you know. It used to have cows and hay. And somehow you really want to be there. So you need something around you, like heating and, yeah. and a bathroom and horrible stuff like that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to live. Yeah. But you do not want to change the barn, so what do you do? Yeah. So it took me five years to really figure out how we could be in there uh, without messing up with this beautiful monumentality and the honesty of its materials and, and the rural aspects of it that I liked so much. I didn't want to destroy that because we moved in there, you know. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a stone barn actually. It's about 25 meters long and 8 meters wide. Mm. Thick, thick stone walls of 60 centimeters. And then these beautiful wooden spans in oak. Um, yeah, what do you do with that? So I started to look at other buildings uh, nearby um, that kind of integrated um, wooden structures, but um, not like spans that are, of course, only structural and to hold a roof, um, but walls that could be closed. And then I ended up um, with these structures of these... Um, What's the word in English? Vakwerk uh, houses. You know, the timber structure which is filled oh. with hemp or with... Yeah, uh, so timber-framed... Timber-framed yeah, housing, yeah, yeah. 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 So we started to look at, at all kinds of timber-framed structures to put in there, like a house in a house. And then we could fill this timber frame also... Um, yeah, we kind of abstracted it. And um, we could fill it up with um, glass. And then we would fill it up with hemp. So I went... To learn how to build myself with hemp so we're gonna do that now um, and you're gonna do this yourself yes okay. yeah, yeah because I have a really I have my idea of how I want it to be and it's um, again not completely the traditional way I'm putting in all these layers um, of, of slightly different colors so it becomes this very tactile almost like a painting Mm. Um, and I've been doing some tests with that with some friends. So yeah, next summer I know <laughs> That's I know what to do. So it's a very slow design. We're not in a hurry there, um, and we're we're very experimental because it's my own my own barn. You know, I can do whatever I want. Um, I've, I'm of course my own most difficult client. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but the thing is, uh, friends see that, um, other people see that. So we already have two other projects now. One is in Les Pyrenees, France also. Uh, one is in the center of Brussels, which kind of deal with that same ideas on, on, on how to work with an existing structure, which I love. Mm. I love to do reconversions. I always have. Um, yeah, and how to work with that. If, if, if you make a house out of that, a livable space, without destroying it. In working with a structure like that, so close to it, right, where you are both your own client and you're aware of your own budget and ability to do the work is it easy to think abstractly about the design then like are you able to step outside in that context 
as the architect and to rigorously impose discipline on yourself despite what you know about, well, that's going to cost me an extra 10,000 euros. Do you know where I'm coming from? I guess I've never designed anything for myself. That's where I'm coming from. Yeah. And there's something about the distance, I think, that's useful in architecture where you can think freely and, of course, the client will always bring you back to reality. Mm. But that... When it's for yourself, do you switch off those parts of your brain? Do you, when you're thinking about that house as you're designing it? Or are you always embedded in the contingencies and realities of your life as you work there? It's somehow always a starting point even, I think. Yeah. Always. It's, it's always there. Um, but I love to disconnect it. And I try to find systematics to... Um, to help me doing that in the tectonics yes yeah and this is actually what I learned at TAA and it's exactly that about how you can go into a rational process or uh, a certain systematics which disengages you from reality um, but then always bring it back and it's back and forth and I love this back and forth process um, so yeah and this is what I try to teach also to my students um, in Ghent at St. Lucas um, when they need to design a building, I always, they uh, were working in the city always, trying to be grounded, doing public buildings like schools or libraries, mm-hmm. the master program. But I always ask them to disconnect from anything they know or, you know, try to lose themselves into these abstract um, structures and tectonics, almost like whatever they want, like paintings or models or start thinking of a room or a table or a beam or a column or a stair or a window, you know. So it's it's tectonic elements, it's spatial elements. Um, and start to work from that. Mm. And start to make patterns, you know. And for me, it's important that they really disconnect this from the reality of their project. But then, you know, they superimpose it. You know, and this can be quite radical, you know, and then you turn it upside down and then you slice it again. And, you know, you really play around with these things and uh, you end up with solutions that you could never think of before. And this is what I love to do. So for the barn, I really went looking into these patterns, for example, of all these timber housing and all these timber frames, um, disengaging from the original spans and then putting them in the barn to see what would happen, you know. And of course, this was not the end. That's the most important thing. You put in 30 of them, 300 of them, and then you, you're playing with it, yeah. And of course, it needs to work functionally, and it needs to carry a structure. So there's all these things coming in, but you pull them out again, because if you immediately start too much from, from these local contingencies or the practicalities, you lose the poetics completely. Mm. And it's exactly the poetics that can be brought in through this more abstract working, I, I think. Yeah, I think that the poetry arises in that tension between the two. Then oh. the, in, in, in the, in, in, you need both. Yeah. The purely abstracted work on its own, for me anyway, when I've connected with it, uh, has no poetic content. And the purely practical has none either. For me, now this is personally speaking, but mm. it's when you get this kind of charge or some kind of resonant presence from yeah. multiple ways of looking at the same problem, trying to cohere in something at the same time while not being fully able to do that. I'm not really making sense. There's that beautiful book by um, Jan Tarkovsky, mm-hmm. uh, The Poetics of the Wall Projection. I don't know if you know it. It's really worth checking out, but it's yes. about precisely this problem. It's about uh, Wittgenstein mm-hmm. designing the house for his sister, right? Yeah. Or, well, actually not designing it, working within the design of the other architect, not questioning that and then seeking to perfect it with it, all these multiple bilateral symmetries, which, of course, the second you thicken a line from a diagram into the matter of architecture incongruencies and inconsistencies arrive to do with simple things like the placing of a window or a door or all these kind of things. The real meat of architecture is yeah. the working out of this stuff, right? Yeah. And anyway, the book tracks this thinking in Wittgenstein House ending up being what 
the author calls the wall projection, which is this fudge. It's a classic architectural fudge to make a window on a recessed part of the facade look like it's mm-hmm. symmetrically located on the outside and the inside. Yes. And it itself is a kind of relatively inconsequential part of the house, but it becomes a moment where we can empathise with Wittgenstein's struggle in the design and the making of that piece. And I think you're talking about similar processes between... Yes diagrammatic or mathematically produced ordering systems and the reality of material and how it wants to join together and what it needs to hold. Mm-hmm. And you're saying you don't reject those things, you put them both together at the same yeah. time and you ask what they do in opposition and working with one another. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I love to make them clash and to do it radically and, you know, I love this, the element of, of surprise. I love to surprise my own brain with my hand that doesn't really know yet what to do, things like that. Yeah, it's funny. I was having a conversation earlier today with Tina DiCarlo about exactly that. Like, how do you... The, the, the act of drawing out the project, you know, where you're... The drawing of the project is both a drawing out, as in drawing from a well. It's, it's, it's something is coming through your hand or through the working which you're not fully in control of. But it's interesting that you say that you like disjunction and surprise because I'm looking at the work of your practice that you and Lean run and it seems so beautifully synthesized and really in a kind of carefully controlled equilibrium between the forms and the rhythms and the orders that you're bringing and the spaces which you're working within, right? And so in this process, it's the disjunction and the method that you're seeking and then you have a project. That's the project. Mm-hmm. But then you obviously put a huge amount of work into refining that thing and making it into the thing that you ultimately build. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Tremendously. Yeah. We make lots of models and testings and uh, 3D also um, and drawings. And then I use the same method as with what I've been learning at Christians is that um, our assistants, they draw plans all the time, but they print them out and we sketch on top. And then they take them again, and this, there's this back and forth process. Uh, you question every detail, um, you look at the window as if you don't really know how to draw a window detail, and then, yeah, you start from that. So you try to kind of forget a few things um, to get new things going and, and, and to open up your mind to see new things. That's, that's what I like, things that need to be there, you know, yeah. which are not there yet. So. Uh, instead of just yeah, with your own mind copy pasting what you know, you know, this, every every space has got its own particularities and its own strengths, its own rhythm, its own proportion, um, and it takes some time to find it and a lot of doubt. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting. Doubt is essential, right? <laughs> yeah. Doubt is the big thing. Even you know when you put something there in the space and you look at it and you think like. God, we should have made it a little bit higher, you know. Yeah. <laughs> These things happen even when the thing is there already. Yeah. You're always, it's always a bit in flux, these things. Um, or, you know, you're discussing wood sections with the carpenter and you make decisions and you made so many models, you know, and then you alter four millimeters because this is the section at hand, you know. And then you look at it afterwards and say, oh, we should have said, we should have said no, we should have said no. And now, yeah, there's always these things. Of course that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 and this happens also in the design process. Definitely yeah. it does. Yeah, yeah. Or even, you know, um, when a client is not certain yet and you start looking further on, even then, you know, it happens that you come up with another solution that is better than the one before. That's what you need to go for. The worst is that if you change things because of a client, client's rejection or a client's doubt, that you end up with some kind of a compromise. Yeah, and, um, and it's not what they want either. You know, the, no. it, 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 is a, it is a conversation that happens sometimes, though, where the, the client is looking at a space and they go, mm, just, we just need this one thing and we really do need it. And you go, okay, and you go back and you do that one thing. And of course, everything begins to change because everything is interrelated. Mm -hmm. And you come back to the client and they go, but I only asked you to change one thing. And you said, yes, but this is the consequence. And it's a kind of, it's a kind of, and it's not being churlish. It's just being true to what your job is. And of course, nine times out of 10, the clients completely understand that. But I do enjoy that toing and froing, that kind of incertitude. And it yeah. seems to me that the longer one's experience of projects that you start and you move on to a better idea or the project gets abandoned by a client or whatever, 
or you don't win the competition or whatever, mm. that you build up this reservoir of thinking that allows you to get more and more, potentially more and more nimble and being much freer and easy in those negotiations with, with clients in particular. We find that now is that you can sort of re, you can move very fast because you're drawing on this bigger and bigger reservoir of thoughts yeah. that have sat elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so that's interesting because your reservoir is more diverse than mine because we've had this conversation that starts with you know, a classic modernist European architecture education to do with the canon, essentially. And I do think that actually that's an essential part of our education is to look at yes. this, these people and their work and to really understand them. Not only the people you mentioned, but others, more peripheral figures. And then you do this kind of deep dive into the world of, well, now parametrics. It didn't have a name then, right? It didn't have, a, it didn't have an ism yeah. when you started it. Uh, via Dom Hans van der Laan now to your own work and your own work is this really interesting juxtaposition of scenography, architecture, furniture but it's all architecture to me it's sort of all that thing and it would be interesting now to kind of have a conversation about where do you see uh, the various parts of that trajectory in your work at the moment I mean, is it from like, is there, is, there, is there stuff coming from seeing Zaha work, like with representation, like painting and these kind of things? Is that still something you hold on to? Or is it the mathematics of that? Or, or say, looking at um, Mies van der Rohe or others that you were studying when you were younger? Are you seeing all parts of that orchestra now playing in your office? Is what I'm sort of asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think from the rigor of my, my education in Antwerp, you know, you really learn how to build and become um, quite good at solving practical problems and functional design and, yeah, getting some elementary poetics into that um, and moving with that um, in the direction of Saha. Um, I really learned to do big projects there, you know. Give me a museum program and I have it for you in an hour <laughs> in, a, in a matter of speaking I was really trained in, in, in complexities and of course these things could have been um, it wasn't parametrics then I, I would hmm, even a little bit closer even to the deconstruct thinking yeah. a little bit yeah. still um, but even then you know these things needed to be built so yes everything worked and there were fire stairs and there were elevators and there were you know toilets and shafts and all these things and techniques so um, to have all of this layered in a building I really learned this complex thinking um, there a lot um, but then what I really love and I see this happening now in my own work is that um, because you work on a really big urban scale but you see this as being part of a pattern that you can manipulate. Um, a pattern that, of course, is some kind of a grid or whatever, you know. Um, always being no, having notes, having knots of, of it. That's my, what my yeah. lecture is going to be about tonight. Um, I'm able now, and this is what I really learned there, to connect the very small scale to the bigger scale. Yeah. And what I learned with Christian is that um, this needs to be about human perception and, and experience of the space from um, a human point of view. Mm. Um, so I started working with these patterns um, almost as experience fields. And even if we do a furniture piece now, it's always part of this bigger world of, of interconnections and... Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, I paint always the things as well. I still do that, um, um, making models. But it's it's always part of even a joint of a table. It's always part of 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 yeah. It's it's in a space. It's sitting there. It could be more. It could be a world of joints um, kind of experience. And is that, is that then because that requires a very intimate connect, connection on your part with every millimeter of the work of your practice right so is that why you were uneasy when the practice started to grow beyond seven people was it Mm -hmm. also was it less maybe managerial than it was you simply can't see everything in an office that says above 10 
it becomes impossible for you as the principal to be that much connected with the work. Yeah. Um, is that part of that? I, yeah. I never saw it really like that, but I think maybe yes. Because you can because, do a big building with seven people, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. This thing about European procurement, and, and which isn't really necessarily a European problem, it's, it's how the states have interpreted right? Which is that in Ireland you can't do big work for the state unless you're a big office and you've done 20 of those things before. Mm-hmm. And the irony is, if you've done 20 schools, odds are your 21st isn't going to be one that you care too much about. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the evidence bears it out. Whereas quite frequently, the first time you do a school might be the best one you'll ever do because you're thinking at it on a very intense level. And of course, an office of five or six people can do big scale pieces of work if they're all pulling together. And it's interesting, how is your experience in Belgium with that? I mean, they have a much more, you have a much more sophisticated version of state procurement in Belgium, don't you? Yes. The Boomies, Baumeister system. Yeah. yeah. And is that benefiting your practice? Absolutely. Yeah. Not always. It's not always easy. Not all the projects get through. Um, but yeah, it's not only about the size of the office, but it's really about. Um, I think you've got these more commercial offices, yeah, um, and they're working with standards and they're working immediately with square meters that they extrude, and there you have your building. Put a facade against it, um, and all these plasterboards inside, and then you know you've got this way of, of corporate thinking on, on, on architecture, which is very commercial. Um, um, yeah, and of course, you build up a portfolio quite quickly um, when, you, when you work like that. I think the Baumeister is um, trying to really go against this way of thinking. So what they do is that they got a pool of, of, of architects, a lot of them now, and actually a lot of you are, are in there as well. Yes, from, from, yes. from the UK. From the UK yeah. and, 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 and all over. Um, um, Baumeister uh, selects 10, um, and this is on a brief, but from the 10 there's always a few younger offices. Um, uh, of yeah, even the small scale, uh, medium scale. Um, so and then they're presented to the client, and the client together with the client they choose five, and then you do a competition. So at least they really want to go against this corporate architecture. And uh, but yeah, also the bigger companies they do kind of well um, uh, within the Baumeister scheme. Um, but yeah, you're invited as a younger of a practice there as well, absolutely, yeah, to really get, have a go. And I think if you're into this public tendering where they ask at least three similar projects of the same size, um, yeah, you're in trouble yes. as one of the smaller <laughs> smaller yeah. companies. And uh, even if you try to make a consortium or, 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 or a group of people working together, um, it, yeah, you kind of are on the side and it's the contractor deciding so, yeah, I had some strange experiences there. But, um, uh, yeah, with the Baumeister, also you're invited to make teams. A lot of uh, companies or architectural offices from abroad make teams with local um, smaller offices and then they work together like that. And, um, yeah, a few really good projects come out of that. It's quite um, intense, a lot of, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And it's, it is very, I mean, a lot of very good buildings have seems to me come out of it and public spaces and yeah. I mean the general standard of the architecture procured through that system is is exceptional yeah um because a lot of the work that you do is public work it's public facing work yeah and yeah do you feel that I mean from the outside I often wonder does it feel difficult to be a Belgian architect given that you are an island of interesting procurement system where other countries don't have that same so, of course, you've mentioned the number of UK architects that are applying there and from other countries. Do you think that puts an unfair burden on the Baumeister system or is it something that's just inherently part of...? Mm. Well, you've got different voices there. <clears throat> I think we're actually quite lucky with that system. But, of course, being so very close to it, um, we're always complaining about it as well. You know, you always Naturally, yes. And naturally, we're always complaining about it. And uh, now it's like uh, so many assignments are going to architects from abroad... And why are they not giving enough to us? And, yeah. Uh, um, I think we've got a lot of really good architects in, 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 um, 
in Flanders for the moment. Um, I think we really breed it, um, and it started in the 80s and the 90s, an architectural culture. Um, there is the Flemish um, um, Architectural Institute. Um, there's been lots of exhibitions, and um, they really reached politics as well. So um, in Belgium, um, and I think maybe in other countries, still a little bit different, but um, the politics in cities, um, they really felt that they would benefit from good architecture. Yeah. And they really engaged in every city. You know, there's, of course, yeah, uh, Antwerp, Ghent and uh, Leuven. They, they all started, I'm not counting Brussels. Brussels is, is starting now, but uh, a, bit, a bit behind. Um, they're all having their efforts in getting good public squares and, and some significant buildings there. Um, and there's this architectural culture. Mm. So it's a very positive vibe that's, that's, um, that's been coming since the 80s. Um, and that's because they got politics on board. It depends on the politics. Um, yeah, um, we had elections a while ago and then there was a new party elected. Um, um, they're culturally engaged in a completely different way and then the Baumeister was almost expelled in, oh, okay. in Antwerp and things like that. So yeah, yeah, I know, it's a constant fight. As well in Belgium, it's a constant fight. But we were lucky to have some politicians on board who were really engaged culturally and were culturally, intellectually engaged, I mean. Eh? Um, and yeah, surround themselves with the right people and also architects, also artists, and they really support that. Mm. Um, but yeah, it could change any minute. It's, it's quite closely linked. It's scary sometimes. Yeah, okay. So it's precarious in Belgium too. Yes, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and the fact that um, yeah, a lot of Belgians are, are building internationally as well, or they're teaching. Yeah. A lot of our really good colleagues have gone to the ATH. I've noticed. <laughs> I've noticed. Yeah, we're populating it now, uh, which is a shame. Uh, but anyway, that's how it works now. Eh? That's how it works. This is, uh, seems to be a European kind of, not circuit, but it does seem to be a kind of... Yeah. Yeah, it's at some point... Everybody steps in and out of Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to cover before we wrap up? Is there anything? Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, Tina Di Carlo. Oh, Tina, yeah. Yes, because I saw her yesterday. Yeah. It was a session at TAA. Yes, you were doing a conversation about drawings. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. yes. And uh, it, was, it was beautiful. I, I put a slide also in my lecture of it. Because these were drawings of Peter Merkley. And, yeah, um, from Drawing Matters collection. Yes, yes. Yeah. Beautifully put up from um, Neil Hobson's collection. And uh, Phil Christou was there as well. And so we were talking about these drawings and um, the status of these drawings. And um, basically it's, it's kind of, again, this process of your drawing. Yeah, it's at TA we did it with the computer, kind of. But it's a similar kind of process that Peter Merkley is doing. His drawing could be a detail, could be a facade, or could be a plan. Um, he's, but he's got this potentiality of three-dimensionality and this potentiality of space. Of space. And uh, at some point, Neil said uh, in this series of drawings um, that Merkley was trying to find the space where the architecture is agency. Yeah. Know? And I really loved the way he said that. So I think that's a beautiful way of seeing it as well. Yeah. I, I, I heard that yesterday and it really opened up again my mind to always do the same thing. Like, what are we actually doing and how are we drawing and how are we designing? So all these little sketches of, of, of Peter um, Merkley is really about this, um, I call it potentiality, but it's... Um, it's the agency of architecture. Yeah, no, you are. You're, you're, you're yeah. trying to set something in motion. Yeah. And then it starts to move, and your job is to sort of keep up, right? And well, it's about um, you postpone the motion for a while, and you just draw things, or you. And of course, this is your hand drawing, or this is your subconscious drawing, or even if you're drawing on the computer, of your painting, or making models. But you, you leave it in an abstract zone, kind of, yeah? So you're slowing things down, and, and, and but always in the back of your mind, it, it might be something. Yeah. And then you're looking for this, yeah, I, I loved it, uh, the, the agency, 
yeah. of the architecture. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not there yet, but you feel that it's behind the layers and it's somewhere there. And then suddenly, you know, at some point you have, as you could call, you call it this kind of a, a library of things that you have. Yeah. Um, but this is not only from projects that didn't proceed or, or didn't move on or, or ideas that got changed. These are things that have the potentiality, yeah. but uh, um, not, it's nothing yet. Yeah, it's just there, you know. And then the more you build up this catalog for yourself, the richer this gets. Um, and always, also, he, Peter Markey, is drawing the same thing, actually, all the time. Slowly, slowly changing. Um, and this is also how he sharpens his mind, because could be maybe at some point that. And then he goes back to his library when he needs to design a building, and then, you know, one of these drawings could become a part of it or part of the design. Yeah, those drawings feel like they're working on multiple levels for me. They're, um, they are for sure meditative. They, mm. are, um, they are a way of passing time and they're a way of keeping a sensibility living and vital and available to mm -hmm. connect with at any stage. And, and of course he does those drawings and then he does these proportional drawings and he does drawings to do with the projects and he does overlays and in his atelier they're all present at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels like just a very sophisticated way of keeping, keeping his, his ability to see things precisely at all stages because mm -hmm. the living kind of thinking of the project and the practice is always being advanced through projects and not through projects at the same time. Yeah. And it does feel like a really telling thing. I mean, I see a similar parallel with Caesar's sketchbooks where, you know, Caesar seems to need to sketch the way we breathe. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that it's just what he does. And yeah. that consistent drawing and redrawing and constant motion of his hand over the page just feels like a way of keeping alert to the potentials of the world yeah. and keeping alert to the potentials of both his own work but also the work of others and of the people mm -hmm. around him it's I, these things are kind of inspirational things to see which is why the drawing matter collection is so valuable i think yes. it's an extraordinary place beautiful yeah 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 i need to go there very soon oh you really do <laughs> yeah. uh, you really do well particularly with your interest and your research uh in kind of in terms of abstraction mm -hmm. and where the project might be found you can spend weeks pouring through the archives out there. Yeah. Uh, I hope to do that at, yeah. some, at some time. Find some time, you know. <laughs> yeah, we'd all love that. Um, before we wrap up, we always close these conversations with uh, one question, which is that if you had a single piece of advice to give somebody about to study architecture or studying it at the moment, what would, you, what would it be? Mm, well, to take your sketchbook and go out in the city and to really experience buildings and to try and draw, even if you can't draw at all, <laughs> what you see and to train your eye. That's it. That's great advice. So yeah. Caroline, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing the lecture now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. As always, do remember to subscribe and leave your comments and all of that. Um, just thanks again to the Register team who are instrumental in all the work that we're doing here in the Kingston School of Art. That's Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, Christoph Luder, and in particular, Laura Evans, who works on this lecture series and podcast series with me. So it just remains for me to wish you all well and catch you in the next episode. Thank you very much.